0: From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in. We're all trying to find the right balance between saving time and providing the best care for our patients. That's why we're excited to tell you about DX. Whether you're trying to solve a challenging case, engage patients by showing them medical imagery that looks like them, or look up the latest treatment options VisualDx is here to help. Your peers have said recently that you can just see the sense of satisfaction and understanding from the patient while using VisualDx. Try VisualDx for free for seven days, then get 50% off a yearly subscription. Visit visualdx.com forward slash AAD to get the AAD discount. That's visualdx.com forward slash AAD to get started today.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Vesna Petronicz-Rosic for Dialogues in Dermatology. I have a very special treat for you today. I will be speaking with Dr. John E. Harris about vitiligo. Dr. Harris is professor and chair of the Department of Dermatology at the UMass Chan Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts. A tenure-track physician scientist, he is founding director of the Autoimmune Therapeutics Institute and of the Vitiligo Clinic and Research Center at UMass. These incorporate a specialty clinic for the diagnosis and treatment of patients with vitiligo as well as a vitiligo research laboratory. He uses basic translational and clinical research approaches to better understand autoimmunity in vitiligo with a particular focus on developing more effective treatments. Dr. Harris, welcome, and thank you for speaking with us. Yeah,
2: thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I can talk about vitiligo forever. Uh, yes. <laughs> so I'll try not to. I'll try to limit the answer. <laughs> oh, we
1: want you to talk about it all the time. And also, let me offer my congratulations on the P50 grant that you received just recently. That is an amazing success. Thank you. Can you please tell us about the various presentations of vitiligo in children and adults and their implications for prognosis and treatment?
2: So they're fascinating. That's the first thing. I think it's so much fun to, to be a vitiligo specialist and uh, really pay attention to the details when someone comes in with white spots on their skin. And even when they come in when they don't have vitiligo, sometimes it's the differential diagnosis of vitiligo. They might have hypopigmented diseases that are not vitiligo or other things. So really understanding all the patterns of vitiligo, how it does present and the variants that exist is super helpful for our patients. It not only has prognostic influence, but also differential diagnosis importance. So there's a lot of reason to focus on it. Vitiligo, really, I think that there are two primary presentations. One is kind of symmetric and all over the body, uh, and it can affect any part of the body. And then the other is asymmetric, where it stays focused on one side of the body, doesn't cross the midline. Those behave very differently. So we call just one side of the body segmental vitiligo. And we've been calling the symmetric non-segmental vitiligo. So I guess that's the term that's stuck in the one we're going to be using. I don't like it because I hate, you know, 90% don't have segmental vitiligo. So I hate to say that 90% of the patients don't have segmental, right? Non-segmental, but that's where we are. Vitiligo likes the face. It really likes the hands and the genitals. And those are the, kind of the preferred areas, but it can affect any part of the body. Recognizing those presentations is important. I guess one more that I would talk about here is vitiligo can be stable or it can be active. So it can be actively spreading with new spots, you know, all the time. Recognizing that's really important for prognosis and treatment, because if you if you forego treatment when it's active, it can triple body surface area in a very short amount of time. And so recognizing signs of activity is important. And there are a number of those that we teach and talk about in our in our presentations.
1: So I imagine that the information the patient can communicate to you is so relevant how should we approach diagnosis and workup of vitiligo?
2: You're exactly right. Talking to the patient is really critical for a lot of reasons. So one of the easiest is how long have you had your vitiligo and is it changing? Are you getting new spots or has it been stable for a long time? That what that helps tell you if it's active or not. In addition, I would say one of the most important questions you can ask your patient is how does this affect you and, and what can I do for you? You know, So not making assumptions about what they're seeking and why they're in, in the office that day. So I think it's wrong to assume that They want treatment necessarily. They may be coming in just looking for reassurance that they don't have anything else wrong or for information. That's not usually the case. If they take the trouble to come to my clinic and wait for the waiting period to get in, they they usually want treatment. But we shouldn't be telling them that it's no big deal and that there's nothing for vitiligo. Often I'm the fifth or sixth dermatologist they've come to see because the other five, told them there was nothing that could be done. And it's not that big a deal anyway. You can just live with it. Lots of people do. So that's the key. I think talking, communicating with your patients. One time I had a I had a resident who went with a patient, came out to present to me, and she was wide-eyed and uh, a little bit shocked. And I said, what happened? And she said, well, the patient has pretty light skin, and I couldn't see his vitiligo, and he came all the way up from South Carolina. And I said, so why'd you travel all this way? I can't even see it. And he said he became incensed. And he said, you want to know why you can't see my vitiligo? Do you want to know why you can't see it? It's because I don't go out during the daytime. I only go out at night. I'm a vampire. I don't go to the beach with my friends. I don't live a normal life. I would like to do that. So I tell that story just so people realize that the things we say, we may not have even be thinking. She might have thought she was complimenting him. You know, don't worry about it. I can't see it. But we can't project that onto our patients. It's, it's much better to ask them.
1: Um, That is such an excellent point. Not to assume how they feel about their condition, and not just with LIGO, any condition, and not to impose on them what we think about how they appear. I can't emphasize that enough. What about workup? What can we do to work up the patient to make sure that we have the correct diagnosis and to eliminate the possibility of something else masquerading?
2: So I usually tell everyone that that vitiligo is typically a clinical diagnosis. So we we don't often do biopsies to verify. The biopsy is diagnostic for sure because you shouldn't have any melanocytes in that biopsy. So if you're unclear, if you're unsure, a biopsy can help differentiate a couple of different options. Vitiligo is depigmented, acquired depigmentation, very few other diseases do that. So you have lots of acquired hypopigmentation, but that is never vitiligo. And and there are a few things that are depigmented that you can acquire. Idiopathic gutate hypomelanosis occasionally can be de- depigmented and 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 you can acquire that. Sometimes you can have severe post-inflammatory hypopigmentation that's really depigmentation. And lupus is dispigmentation with some depigmentation. So there are a few things that can. But most things on the differential diagnosis of vitiligo are, are simply hypopigmented. And so a woods lamp is critical. I have a woods lamp in every one of my rooms in every clinic because I always use it. Does't matter. The skin type, you know even with darker skin types, the woods lamp can reveal subtle changes at the edge. That really is informative. I've occasionally had patients I've had to biopsy. So I had a patient who came in and I couldn't determine whether she had lichen sclerosis at a or vitiligo in the genitals. And I tried really hard and usually I can tell them apart, but in this case I couldn't. And so I did two biopsies and found out she had both. They were overlapping. So she had clear vitiligo and she had clear LSNA. So that in that case, the biopsy was really important. And sometimes I will, even if I think it's probably LSNA, I'd like to confirm it because we treat that pretty aggressively.
1: Yes, and as a dermatopathologist, I cannot agree more <laughs> Now, what about chemically induced disease? How are those different from idiopathic
2: disease? It's fascinating actually, and, and we used to call chemically induced disease uh, like chemical leukoderma to differentiate it from vitiligo because we weren't entirely sure it was it was the same process. Now I'm completely convinced it is the same process, and so I, I say chemically induced vitiligo is a term that I use similar to how we have. Um, drug-induced lupus, et cetera, because you can stop the drug, and then people have classic vitiligo afterward. And so the, the first observation of this was in 1939 in a group of factory workers. It was a tanning factory, and to protect their hands from the chemicals, they were wearing rubber gloves. And the rubber accelerator in those gloves was monobenzyl ether of hydroquinone, and about half of the people using and wearing those gloves developed vitiligo. Uh, on their hands and their arms, but then they, it spread to other areas as well. So there was an occupational dermatologist who went into the factory all the way back then, almost 100 years ago, and discovered what it was. So discovered it was the gloves, discovered it was this chemical in the gloves by using a pledget uh, application of just the chemical on the neck of patients, and they depigmented underneath it. Since then, it was removed from the gloves and, and not used in, in manufacturing anymore. But it's funny, in the, in the 70s, it was rediscovered by Tom Fitzpatrick at Harvard who said, hey, maybe we could take that drug and put it into a cream and actually treat patients with it, make their vitiligo worse, get rid of their spots, and then they'd be even. And so the, interestingly, that it worked, and it became the first FDA-approved drug for vitiligo. And we didn't have another FDA-approved drug for vitiligo until last year. So for almost 40, 50 years, all we had was a drug that made vitiligo worse. Now, some patients use it, and, uh, and it works for them, and it, it's a good result for them. But anyway, that was the first application. There have been others that have been identified since. A couple of notable ones were one in um, 2013. The summer of 2013 in Japan, there was an outbreak of vitiligo. And this was because there was a company named Kanibo that made a new skin lightening cream. And about 2%, 2 to 4% of the individuals using that cream to lighten their skin developed vitiligo. All of them starting underneath the application site, but many of them spreading beyond that as well. So that cream had to be recalled and the Japanese government supported research into that to understand what was happening. Even more recently, there was a report of over 50 kids developing vitiligo on their hips after application of a methylphenidate patch for ADHD. So methylphenidate is the drug that is Ritalin and it can be applied as a patch instead of orally. And so that chemical, when applied on the skin, puts people at risk for developing vitiligo. And I had one as a patient, and there have been over 50 cases reported to the FDA. What's common among all those drugs and chemicals, and even the ones we, we, I haven't talked about, is they're all phenols. So they all have, remember back to organic chemistry, they all have a benzene ring with a hydroxyl group on it. And the other thing that has that is the amino acid tyrosine. So melanocytes take in tyrosine as a building block for melanin. And so what we think happens with these chemicals is that they bring it in thinking that it's tyrosine and then it messes them up internally and stresses them out. They undergo autophagy, they recruit in the immune system that kills them uh, and then it spreads.
1: That is all just so fascinating. One
2: more notable chemical, actually, it's important, is uh, hair dyes do this as well. So hair dyes anecdotally had been reported you know, over many years. But I did a study with Abraq Qureshi uh, where we looked at a large database and showed that using a hair dye before the age of 30 or for more than five years increases your risk of vitiligo by 50%. So it's it's an important piece we weren't talking about chemicals in vitiligo for a long time and uh, I think it's it's important to recognize that now.
1: And that is great information for our listeners to have when they're discussing options and possibilities with their patient. So this is an excellent segue for me to say we're also very excited that the FDA authorized Ruxolitinib for non-segmental vitiligo just this past year and I'm sure you're beside yourself from excitement. But can you talk about the current available therapies, their relative efficacy, and their limitations, please?
2: Yeah. So for a long time, before July of 2022, when topical ruxolitinib was approved as Opsolura, we still had many treatments. And, and this is why I mentioned at the beginning of the segment that it's frustrating to hear that a lot of my patients were told there was nothing you can do for your vitiligo. That's completely not true. There's many, many things. So we use narrowband UVB. That is important. It's probably the best treatment we've had over the years. And uh, that was established thousands of years ago in India. You know, sunlight and puvasal they were using back then. We'll probably talk about that in a little bit. Um, But we now we we know that using narrowband UVB two or three times a week takes a long time. can take 6 to 12 months of treatment, but this develops excellent repigmentation in patients. For those with very focal disease or as an adjuvant to narrowband UVB, topical immunosuppressants are valuable. So we use class 1 or class 2 topical steroids. We alternate that with tacrolimus to avoid the side effects of the steroids, or you just use tacrolimus in sensitive areas, the face, the genitals, underarms, uh, the breasts. So those we've had for a long time. We use oral mini-pulse steroids with patients who are very active to prevent the spread. It, it, It... acts very quickly and stops the spread of disease, which is great, while we're waiting for the narrowband UVB to start working. Uh, that could take three months. So we'll often put them on oral steroids as well.
1: Can you please describe the oral menopulse regimen you use? I heard about it at the symposium you had the other day here at the AAD in New Orleans. And I'm not sure that widely it is well-known. So can you please give us more information on that?
2: Right. The regimen that we use actually grew out of our colleagues in India. They reported it, and it's become our favorite approach. I can say previously I was using prednisone, uh, 20 milligrams every other day, alternating to try to avoid side effects, and and that that was okay. Now what we use, again, from from our colleagues in India is oral dexamethasone. Uh, I like to use 4-milligram TAB just two consecutive days a week. So we can say on weekends, Saturday, Sunday, you take one pill each day and, and then nothing the rest of the week. And I use that for three months because it's a bridge to phototherapy. So hopefully we start the oral dexamethasone and the phototherapy very close to each other. And as the phototherapy is getting working, we've got the dexamethasone on board. And then we can just uh, stop it. It doesn't need to be tapered. We stop it after three months. That dose works very, very well. It stabilizes 90 plus percent of patients and very few people have side effects. It's a very low dose. And that intermittent dosing works really well. So we've been pretty happy with it. Occasionally, I'll have patients who report weight gain or mood changes or difficulty sleeping. But uh, at that, at that regimen it's much lower for kids we use a lower dose and it's kind of arbitrary who i call a kid it's based on their body size but we'll use two milligrams in two consecutive days
1: very good thank you for sharing that and how are you using the new drug rexolitinib
2: Ah, so as you mentioned, we are very excited about that. We've been working on that for a long time. We're part of phase two and phase three studies. And that grew out of our basic science and our mouse model and and translational research for the rationale to use it. And so I was excited to be part of all that. July 2022 was approved by the FDA. The FDA actually held a meeting for vitiligo, anybody, vitiligo stakeholders to join and a thousand people registered. It's the largest registration they've ever received for an FDA meeting. And they got the message very clearly that that there is a huge need uh, for treatments. Um, And they got that directly from individuals with viniligo. That's who they wanted to hear from. So it was approved in 2022, July, actually. I remember it very clearly because shortly thereafter, I had about 300 phone calls from my patients wanting it. (laughs) So we were knee-deep in prior authorizations and and all. And it took a while for the the payers to catch up and and put it on their formularies. But we've been doing quite well now with a lot of approvals. uh, And the company that makes it, Insight, um, has, has a program for those who aren't approved for the drug. And so I have a lot of patients on it. And excited to report it works. You know, it works as well as in the trials. Sometimes real life, it doesn't always mimic trials. I can say uh, two weeks ago, I had a patient who came in and who had um, lesions on her on her shins that she'd been treating very reliably for a very long time with topical steroids and tacrolimus alternating. And we gave her obsolura and she came back in and she said, this is the only thing that's worked after years. That's the only, you know, they've never been tested head to head. So we we've always thought it worked better, but in this case we saw a response where we never had before. So we're excited about
1: that. Excellent. Can you tell us about emerging treatments in the context of disease pathogenesis and any recent clinical trial results?
2: Yes, indeed. So there's a lot to talk about. I think that topical rexalitinib is just the tip of the iceberg. If you look at psoriasis 30 years ago, they made some headway with methotrexate and then Enbrel, and that was super exciting. 40% of people responded to Enbrel, and that was a game changer. right? And now we get 90% of people responding 90% or better for like a year after a couple doses in psoriasis. So there's been so much improvement in that. I think the same thing's gonna to happen to vitiligo. So we're super happy to have our first FDA approved drug that paved the way you know, for future. There are oral JAK inhibitors that are being tested. So Pfizer did a phase two clinical trial that showed efficacy. And the phase three clinical trial is about to start recruiting. So that's the plan for an oral JAK called Ritlacitinib from Pfizer. That's pretty close, you know, a couple of years for the phase three, another year for the FDA to review, we can be three to four years away from having that as well. Um, and the phase two data showed efficacy, so we expect the phase three will as well. There's an ongoing trial from AbbVie to test uh, upatacitinib, approved for alopecia to test that for vitiligo. And that's a phase two, so enrolling right now. It's a JAK1 inhibitor, we're, we're optimistic for that. And then my own research in the lab has led to some new ideas. We recognized, along with many others, that vitiligo relapses very quickly after treatment has stopped. And it not only relapses, but it comes back in the exact same place it was before. It, it, the, the skin remembers it's supposed to have vitiligo. So we investigated the source of that memory using our mouse model, using human tissues. And we discovered, along with a a few other labs, actually, that resident memory T-cells form in the skin. They're the ones that go in and kill the melanocytes. And then they form resident memory, meaning that they glue themselves into the epidermis and they never leave. So they're responsible for maintaining the disease. And when we treat, we can turn them off, put them asleep, and everything gets better. But when we stop the treatment, they're still there and they wake back up. So we also discovered that those cells rely on a signal from IL-15 for their maintenance, for their survival there. And when we blocked IL-15, not only did vitiligo get better, but we erased that memory. We removed those cells from the skin. Uh, And JAK inhibitors didn't do that. And then the mice had durable responses so we could stop the drug and they stayed better. So that was super exciting. And full disclosure, that launched a a company that we started called Valeris Therapeutics. We developed a monoclonal antibody called Oromolimab. And that was just uh, acquired by Insight, the company that makes Opsalura uh, at the end of last year. And so I'm working with them now as a consultant to help bring that into clinical trials, hopefully within the next few months. So we're excited about that. And then we never quit. So in the lab, we're doing, you know, multi-omics analysis of the skin, trying to find all the pathways that are active. We talked just about two, interfering Gamma and IL-15, but we now know that there are many more turned on and, and many more opportunities to target therapeutically. And we've been, used some novel uh, approaches like bispecific antibodies to tether the drug to the skin where it needs to be. We're starting to look very closely at siRNA as a new drug modality. Uh, it seems to work really, really well. I started a company for that as well called Aldina Therapeutics and we just announced uh, Series A funding for that just two days ago and, and so we're off and running. So long answer to your short question, there's a lot coming and, and we're excited to be part of it all.
1: Well, we're very excited to have you be so active in the field. I have a question that just now came to me from what you were saying. So a lot of these melanocytes, when vitiligo repigments, come from hair follicles. And on glabrous skin, they're very vitiligo is very difficult to treat, obviously. And if you do start getting repigmentation, there's only so far melanocytes can travel on glabrous skin. Can you comment on that and how we can help our patients who, for example, have vitiligo on their lips? And we want to get that to repigment, but then they travel four or five millimeters and then they're kind of done traveling. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So that is a great point. I wish I could comment more because <laughs> I, I wish I knew the answer. But everything you said is, is exactly right. And I think a lot of people don't recognize that. It's important in counseling our patients, setting their expectations. If they have glabrous skin, if there are no hair follicles, you can't have perifollicular repigmentation. And that's really what does the bulk of the repigmentation, the improvement in in, in vitiligo. There is something called marginal repigmentation where the the melanocytes can crawl in from the edge, but as exactly as you said, they only go so far. They only crawl three to five millimeters for some reason. We don't know why, and that's not three millimeters a year. It's three millimeters ever. And they just stop. I don't know if they have a limited proliferative capacity or migration capacity or what. We need to find ways. So we have an idea. I started a company, actually, where we have an idea about how to promote that on lips, acral areas, glabrous skin. I think we have to find a way to encourage those melanocytes to go farther. And and a lot of what we talked about was focusing on the immune system to treat vitiligo. And, and there's a whole other opportunity to target melanocytes and encourage them and and help them along to repigment. I think that's going to be important for those tough to treat areas and not just glabrous skin. So the glabrous, fortunately, there's not a lot of glabrous skin in the human body. There's fingertips, the knuckles, the dorsal hands, dorsal feet, the volar wrists, parts of the genitals. So those are areas that are are really resistant and patients care about those areas, you know, and, and that's It's a little frustrating for me once we say, hey, we finally have a new drug. It's FDA approved. They're like, does it work on my fingertips? They're like, well, no, (laughs) but it's important, right? I I, I think we have to focus on that next.
1: I completely agree. I've had so many patients who have it on the glabrous genital skin, and it may be the only place they have it, but they're so frustrated by it and, and so, so eager to get something that would help. Anything about diet or supplements that can assist us in helping these patients?
2: That is the most frequently asked question from patients. I think patients want to be in control. And so we can prescribe things for them, but they want to know that they have something that they can do as well. And I wrote a blog on this, and essentially the the take-home was no. There's not a whole lot you can do for diet and supplements. There aren't great studies. There's one study that that showed a number of antioxidants and alpha-lipoic acid. It was a randomized study in conjunction with narrowband UVB, may have improved more than the narrowband alone. Hasn't been repeated, it's the only study we've seen. Part of the problem is supplements are not regulated by the FDA. And so you can go into a store and buy a supplement and there are very good studies that show the majority of those supplements that you buy, if it's a plant supplement, don't contain any of the actual supplement. <laughs> so you can go in and buy ginkgo, and and this study showed that most of it was just ground up house plants and contained no ginkgo. So it's hard to do a study if you don't if you can't trust what you're prescribing or, or giving as part of the treatment. Diet, lots of things. So if you go on the internet, there are thousands of things people talk about: gluten free diet or extra vitamin D or extra vitamin C or eliminating vitamin C, both of those. And I had one patient come into my clinic one day, he said, ever since I started supplementing with vitamin C, my vitiligo got better. And I said, okay, keep doing that. The very next patient came in and said, ever since I cut vitamin C out of my diet, my vitiligo started doing better. <laughs> he said, I won't eat oranges, I won't do, you know, and his concept was the vitamin C enhances immune responses and, and you don't want to do that in vitiligo. So two completely opposite interpretations in, in two patients in the same clinic. I think that we have very limited data, but usually my comment is, and there's a little bit of data for uh, ginkgo biloba as maybe helping with UVB, uh, polypodium leucotomus is another fern. That may help a little bit. A couple studies show it helps. A couple studies don't. But my comment is usually we've got amazing treatments. We've got narrowband uvb We now have Opselura. We have all these drugs that we know work through phase, you know, two, three blinded clinical trials. They work a lot. So I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about something that neither of us is really sure about when we could use this other thing. And even if it works, it's it's marginal. So I, I usually don't talk about supplements too much. But that's part of the art of treating of medicine. We have different approaches. Some people do incorporate them in, in, in their patients.
1: I am sure. Any special considerations in children?
2: Certainly potency of steroids. I've had one patient that I've treated who developed uh, stria, went through a growth spurt and developed stria, you know, on a class one topical steroid and never forgot her. She was 16 years old and we were using it intermittently, but not intermittent enough. And so that's really important. Uh, I moved to, uh, at the recommendation of one of our pediatric dermatologists at, at UMass, uh, Karen Wiss and Leah Belazarian, both of them, love Mometazone. It's class two, works great in kids. And it seems to have a much better safety profile. And so that's all I use now. And I even use that in adults now. But every kid only gets mometazone, doesn't get clobetazole or betamethasone. I've never seen the side effects from it. Uh, And the efficacy is just as good. So that's one thing. We use a lower dose of dexamethasone orally, of course. We also have to think about the age when we're thinking about other approaches like narrowband UVB. You know, so the age of five to seven, it's pretty unpredictable for me if that child can handle being in a booth alone. Some five-year-olds can do it. Some seven-year-olds can't. The parents know. So I usually talk to them and say they've got to be able to, you know, be alone for a couple minutes, close their eyes, keep the goggles on, stand still, not play around with the bulbs, not take the goggles off and stare at the bulbs and burn their eyeballs. And the parents are very quick to say, absolutely not, can't do that at this age. Or, oh yeah, absolutely, you know, she could do that. So those are some of the things we think about. You know, we we also worry a little bit about giving potent treatments to kids, whether it's topical jacks or oral jacks. But overall, we find that kids are way more resilient than adults. They're so much healthier than us. So, you know, it's maybe the opposite. They could probably handle a lot more (laughs) of these treatments than adults
1: can. What is the youngest age that you would think about using phototherapy in a child?
2: It used to be five, and now it's four, because I was talked into a four-year-old, very, very mature, follows directions really well. The four-year-old did well. So I would say four or five is probably the youngest I've ever seen in that four to seven age ranges is, is when you can consider it. But it, it, for me, it's hard to know if they can do it.
1: Any best practices in the early diagnosis and long-term management strategies for vitiligo in skin of color?
2: Yeah. so. There's a lot to thinking through. This goes back to collaborating with your patients and asking them what they want. What are they interested in and how much does this affect them? Because I think we make a lot of assumptions. I think a lot of people would assume the darker the skin, the more psychologically it affects the person, right? It, the contrast is, is more clear. It's easier to see therefore it must affect them more. And often that's the case. There are studies that show that uh, the darker your skin, the larger impact it can have on quality of life. That's not to say that those with lighter skin don't have an impact. So I, I think we don't, and it's not to say that those with dark skin um, always are impacted. So I've met through a lot of our support groups and advocacy groups for vitiligo. People can't even call them patients because they don't go to the doctor. they are people with, that have vitiligo with very dark skin and they own it. We even have uh, a few models who have vitiligo and they don't want to treat. This is part of their identity and this is part of why they're successful probably. And so I think in the end, it's not making any assumptions anyway, even when you feel like you may know. A few things to think about with darker skin, there there was a study using a hormone called alpha melanotide. It's an alpha MSH analog many years ago, and it was tested. It was a subcutaneous implant and used with UVB phototherapy, and it accelerated repigmentation. But a lot of medium skin patients dropped out of the trial because it made their normal skin very, very dark. So it darkened their normal skin. The contrast went up, and they didn't like that. Sometimes the edge, even tacrolimus around the edge of a lesion will will hyperpigment the edge. And, and to us, it's a good sign. It looks like it's actually it's repigmenting, but that can be concerning to, to a dark skinned patient. So lots to think about. I think we can get overwhelmed trying to learn everything that we and not miss anything. It's the easiest thing is to just say, hey, what bothers you? And <laughs> what do you want to know? How does this affect you? what do you need from me? That's that's easy.
1: I agree. That's the best way to go and gauge the management decisions based on what the goals of the patient are. There is a deep history of social stigma associated with the disease. Are we moving in the right direction? Well,
2: I'd like to say I'm optimistic that we're gonna get rid of the social stigma. And I think we are going in the right direction with awareness and sympathy and empathy. I think it's increasing in our population, in our, in our community, and that's a good thing. What I'm worried about is that the social stigma has been around for so long and it's so deeply ingrained. So in uh, South Asia, um, in, in India in particular, there are medical writings, medical texts from 3,400 years ago that we still have. The Atharvaveda, the Rig Veda, they mention vitiligo. By name and describe it we know that they were recognizing vitiligo and this is the iron age this is about when moses was leading the exodus out of egypt right we recognized vitiligo and actually how to treat it they were using puvasol their seeds that have sorolin in them and they would have patients chew on them and then sit in the sun in the iron age and get their, their vitiligo would get better but the problem is the atharva veda says that if you have vitiligo you and and your family members can no longer be married and in many more recent texts but still very old buddhist texts hindu texts uh, you couldn't become a buddhist monk if you had vitiligo it was likely that you stole clothes in a former life and so when you were reincarnated you were punished with vitiligo this is this is thousands of years old and ingrained And, and in india i think it's particularly a problem because there's a caste system there's arranged marriage There's leprosy, which can be confused for vitiligo, and there are these ancient writings saying, you know, instituting this stigma. So I think we're headed in the right direction. The question is, can we erase 3,400 years of stigma in my lifetime, you know, in the next 40, 50 years, right? I hope so. I hope that science will help, recognizing it's not contagious, et cetera, but it's not an easy thing.
1: Not at all. I do think that the celebrities with this disease helped a lot people like Michael Jackson, who really brought it into the skin of color community. And so many in my lifetime, I've seen patients embrace it through knowledge of someone like that having it. And now that I mentioned that, can we talk for a moment about health disparities related to this topic? Health disparities follow us for every single disease, but how do they touch vitiligo.
2: Yeah, that's right. I think it's particularly important for vitiligo because as we discussed, vitiligo can affect those with darker skin to a greater degree. And so any existing health disparities that affect those with darker skin and and decrease access, et cetera, it's just amplified in vitiligo beyond everything else when you already start with a a stronger quality of life impairment. The new drugs are very expensive. That's one of the, the criticisms. We just got our first FDA approved drug. It's priced very high. And so then that access becomes an issue. It becomes very hard. Phototherapy, which we've had for a very long time, if you didn't live near a dermatologist that had a unit, it became impossible to get access to that great treatment. Now we have home phototherapy, so people can buy them in their homes. But payers aren't currently paying for them in most cases. So for some patients, it makes sense to just pay it up front. It's about five thousand dollars to buy a, you know a panel that you can put in your home and will treat you just as well as a dermatologist, and will last forever. It's a one-time payment but a one time payment of $5000 is a lot of money and so i see that with a lot of my patients they you know they become discouraged and that opportunity they get excited and they realize that there's no way to pay over time or to lease it, or you know, in a way. So I think we need to work on that. I think we need to certainly work on the payers. The payers will save a lot of money if they just buy people a booth versus sending them to a dermatologist for a year. The payback is is pretty significant. And so we have to be sensitive to those things. In my clinic, I have so many vitiligo patients in my vitiligo clinic that some of them are done with their booth or with their panels at home, and they're ready to repurpose them or, or give them away or sell them at a, at a low price. So I feel like. I'm a little bit of eBay in my clinic as well, matching people together, <laughs> sellers and, and, and people who are ready to give it away to people who really need it. So there's opportunity there. But again, I'm going to sound like a broken record. The key is these disparities, are they come out when you ask questions and when you're open to answers and when you invite comments from your patients and have an open discussion. And sometimes you have to coax it out and, and make them feel comfortable kind of telling you how they feel and not making any assumptions. But uh, I think we can be great advocates for our patients, but first we have to hear from them and um, and, and recognize where the, the trouble spots could be. So if I had a patient, you know, and I just told every patient, hey, buy a unit, this is easy, right? No question, just buy a unit, it's only $5,000. Some people come in and they fly in on their private planes to the clinic. Some people are away most of the year on their yacht. Some people don't know where their next meal's coming from. And we can't always recognize who's who and, and, and that discussion's really critical.
1: Yes, it is. And in that vein, how can we generate interest among current or prospective healthcare professionals who are underrepresented in medicine to engage in this terrific initiative on the disease that you are a part of?
2: Well, this is a start, being able to talk with you. And, and dialogues is, is heard by so many. Last time I did dialogues, all my friends were texting me and calling me up and saying, hey, I just heard you. It was cool. It's really popular in our field. So I think that's key, getting the word out on media. Uh, outlets that, that people listen to. I think we've got to feed the pipeline. We've got to start early. We have to identify uh, students who are interested. And I'm, I'm, I have a lot now that are reaching out to me all the time saying, vitiligo is fascinating to me. I'm, I, I have a family member with the vitiligo. I want to be involved. And many who are coming from underrepresented backgrounds, they've seen the impact that it's had on their friends or family. It, or or just watching it on TV. And we need to encourage them from the very beginning, from very early and help feed that pipeline and and keep it going all the way through to residency, to to graduation. I think that lots of people are gonna flock to become vitiligo experts and and now it's fun, right? It used to be really hard. If most dermatologists were telling people there's nothing you could do, 65% of vitiligo patients actually believed there was no treatment for the disease and that's gotta be coming from their doctors. But now that we have an FDA approved drug, it's getting a lot of press, right? There are commercials, Morgan Freeman, is a voiceover for one of the commercials for vitiligo, catches your attention. Pearl Grimes is on one of the commercials, one of our great dermatologists. And so that catches people's attention. And and I think recognizing there are great options now and many more coming and opportunities to do research and clinical trials, it's attractive. I think people are going to be attracted. So the key is I think we need to feed the pipeline and keep people going and support them all the way through.
1: Yes, use this momentum that you have going on to enrich the field. Well, I cannot thank you enough. This was an exhilarating conversation. Any last words for our listeners? Yeah, I would say
2: at the end, just thinking about all that we said, This is such exciting times for Vitiligo, for patients, for their dermatologists who are taking care of them, for people who care about them, for all the companies that are looking to make new drugs, all the stakeholders. It's an exciting time. And uh, if you're early in your career, if you're uh, a trainee, if you're thinking about what you want to do in the future, I would say consider Vitiligo as a specialty. We're a great group to work with. We have a lot of fun together. The Global Vitiligo Foundation is a great place to go and learn and join and become part of a community. And it's a fun place to be. So think about that.
1: Thank you so much.
0: We're all trying to find the right balance between saving time and providing the best care for our patients. That's why we're excited to tell you about VisualDx. Whether you're trying to solve a challenging case, engage patients by showing them medical imagery that looks like them, or look up the latest treatment options, VisualDx is here to help. Your peers have said recently That you can just see the sense of satisfaction and understanding from the patient while using Visual DX. Try Visual DX for free for seven days, then get 50% off a yearly subscription. Visit visualdx.com forward slash AAD to get the AAD discount. That's visualdx.com forward slash AAD to get started today. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.